0: If you have your copies of scripture, if you will uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, just remind you, if you are joining us uh, early in this uh, later in our study here, we have been working through First Peter uh, today is is actually our 14th week. Uh, We have uh, two weeks left uh, as we will seek to deal with the balance of the text. Uh, Hope you've been encouraged. Uh, Wanted to, you may want to jot these down. uh, As we look ahead beyond that, we'll spend seven weeks uh, in selected Psalms. Um, It's good for us to go to the Psalms coming behind Peter and giving attention Uh, to what the psalmist has to say. So we'll be looking at Psalm 1, 6, 23, 46, 100, 145, and 148. I'll say those again, Psalm 1, Psalm 6, Psalm 23, Psalm 46, Psalm 100, Psalm 145, and Psalm 148. I want to encourage you as we move toward that, that you go ahead and begin reading them now and praying through them. Um, there are a lot of different ways you can do that, but uh, I have found for me to to read it and hear me read it and hear the words, and if that is a distraction for you, uh, most of you have access to Um, uh, your iPhones and different apps, Bible apps, and in most of those they have an audio side. Just listen to them over and over four or five times and then sit down and read and begin to look at the things that God brings to your mind and your heart and write those down. Uh, And as you write those down, then stop and meditate on those things. Uh, And then I would encourage you to write Uh, write your prayers Um, it's helpful to me and then articulate those things to God and I would encourage you in the course of that this is not a a seminar on how to to pray uh, but include uh, in those things words of adoration to God Uh, look at those things as we do here even in our confessions as we look at passages of scripture every week Uh, confess those things uh, if they are confessions about who God is, uh, then write those confessions down. But more importantly, if there are things there that you realize in your own life uh, that are inconsistent with in any way God's word, uh, then confess that before God and then spend time thanking him as you have an opportunity to give attention to the text and then uh, ask God for those things that flow out of the text. And it may be something that is directly in the text. Uh, It can be simply, God, uh, help me know how to apply this text uh, to my life in the days ahead. Uh, And I want to encourage you to do that as we uh, begin to prepare uh, our hearts for dealing with these psalms. And I will tell you this, I'll make a guarantee to you, because I uh, I, I know how God works and I know how His Spirit works. So this is a guarantee from me to you. If you will begin, even this week, reading those psalms uh, and doing the things that I just encouraged you to do, when we get to those psalms, uh, they will take on a whole new life for you. And our times here for our overall edification as individuals and as a body uh, will be greatly, greatly enhanced uh, and and that's what we're about, and that's what we uh, long to see happen uh, as we grow together in Christ. So I want to encourage you to do that. Let's read our text together this morning. First Peter chapter four, uh, beginning in verse twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant us insight into your word today? Help us to understand what you have for us as you prepare our hearts and our minds for what will come and for the days ahead in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you've recently joined us in this study of First Peter, you may be wondering, why would a group of people gather as we are here today, and as we have, uh, particularly for the last uh, 13 weeks, why would a group of believers uh, trusting in God, why would you get together and talk about suffering and persecution? Why would that be important? Why not talk about other things? You might even be thinking, with all the struggles and hardships that I have, with all the interruptions in my life and all the hard things, why would a group of believers, why would I even want to come and to sit under the heaviness and the weight of talking about persecution and suffering? Why wouldn't I come here and somehow or another be made to feel good? Uh, to, to, to to lighten my load and to lighten my heart in some way, why would we need to even give consideration to suffering and hardship? In fact, you may even be here today and you would think that with everything that I, I I've heard, shouldn't, being a Christian, shouldn't Uh, my attendance at church, shouldn't my trying to do better somehow or another avert all the hardship and all the struggling and all the suffering? Shouldn't that take place? Well, I, I would say there are those who would espouse that. And there certainly are uh, men and women who hold to that thought, that if you are a Christian, that if you attend church, that if you try to do better in life, that things are just going to, to be better and that hardship and struggling and suffering somehow or another will not be as great. They would hold up that the Bible is full of promises of God's blessings to those who trust Him, that peace and joy certainly come in prosperity are a part of what it means to trust God. And we would have to say today that Scripture is filled with passages of Scripture that point us in that direction, but not exclusively. What we find when we give a fair reading of Scripture, and if you haven't, I would just encourage you to sit down and read the Bible through. A fair reading of Scripture would help us see and understand that the joy, the peace, the blessings, the prosperity, the uplifting, the strength comes and is recognized and is encountered most often in the midst of the suffering and hardship and struggles that come. Even when they are not necessarily the persecution of the church for being a believer, but just in general suffering. Uh, Many of you have been kind this week, and this was not about me, but uh, you recognized that there was a heaviness of my heart. And uh, you've been kind and you've prayed for me this week, and I want to say thank you. Um, Last Sunday evening, um, we received word uh, that a very good friend of ours uh, passed away, 42 years old, unexpectedly Uh, I was a teacher at Topsail High School and a coach. Uh, There's some of you in here who went to to school uh, with Jamie. You knew him. You loved him. You played ball with him. uh, And he unexpectedly died last Sunday evening. And as the call came, my heart was just overcome because I could think about him and remember him and knew him and I thought of the hurt and the pain of his mom and daddy, who were dear friends of mine. And I found myself in the floor, crying and weeping, uh, overcome with emotion like has never taken place in my life before. Because I hurt for them in the midst of their suffering. I hurt with them in the midst of their struggles and trials and their loss. Uh, because as great as the loss was for us who knew Jamie, Uh, That loss was magnified a hundred times with his children uh, and with his mom and dad and family members. The point is, is that we are looking at suffering and pain and struggle because it is very much a part of our life. And I will argue now from this point on that if we are prepared in life to live looking toward the end, with an understanding of our suffering with Christ and suffering for Christ and his name, and we are equipped and prepared for that to live to bring honor and glory to God in that which is the most extreme, then other suffering and hardship and struggles in the course of our life will find their place under that being dealt with and seen and viewed uh, in a way that will not make them go away, but certainly will be dealt with to bring honor and glory to God. I want us to look at the text here. And I'll give you an outline uh, that we will try uh, to go by. Uh, first point is, is that God and his glory is revealed in suffering. God in his glory is revealed in suffering. God's glory is revealed in suffering. Glory is revealed in suffering. Let's look at verse 13 and we'll see that again and then we will back up. He said, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, what are we speaking of when we are speaking of glory being revealed? What are we speaking of when we're speaking of the the glory of God being revealed? What are we speaking of when we are talking about our own glory being revealed in the course of that? Well, uh, Peter helps us understand that back up in chapter 1 in verse 3, and we looked at it, uh, but he is is zoning in, in in this text Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he he already introduces us to, uh, to the reality of trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what is it are we talking about? Well, glory carries with it the idea of exaltation. In other words, being lifted up, being accepted. So when we read and hear about Uh, those who trust in Christ, being exalted, being glorified, we're talking about them being accepted by God, embraced by God, called to God, brought to Him, brought to Him for eternity. We see that. We know that. That's what Peter was talking about when he said that you have an inheritance, and your inheritance is with God, is kept by God. It cannot go away, and He will accept you and bring you to that inheritance. That's his point. That is is the glory that we are looking at, the glory of being in his presence is being held up. What's the opposite of exaltation? Well, it's repudiation. To be glorified is to be, as we said, accepted and elevated, and the opposite is to be rejected and cast down or cast away. So when we are hearing about this glory that is being revealed, it's the exaltation of Christ, his, 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 the, the, just the magnification of his glory in who he is as the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those whom he has saved his brothers and sisters, his bride. We see that Jesus prayed often regarding the glory of God and his own glory. In John chapter 17, we read, uh, and this is just moments, uh, if you will, uh, and we realize how brief life is, just moments before he is to go to the cross. He said, Father, the hour In other words, the time is here. It is upon us. This hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What was Jesus referring to? Well, Jesus had the cross in mind. He was looking ahead at his own physical suffering. He was awaiting the anguish that would come in bearing the wrath of God for our sin. The sin of those that he would save in light of the exaltation of the Father and his own exaltation, his own glory, God's glory. Remember that Peter has just left this idea, if you will, in our minds. Look in verse 11. Well, let's look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. As each has received a gift, and we looked at this last week, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's the idea. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The point that Peter is making is as he's coming out of this Idea that Christ is to receive all the glory, that God is the one who is to be honored and glorified in all things, that we serve in the life of the body as a family and as a group of people that are seeking, first and foremost, the glory of God and his own exaltation, not that he needs to be exalted by us, but that we need to recognize that there is no one greater than him we need to worship him and praise him and live for him and think on him and serve him and serve one another that he may be glorified, that in that exaltation that we worship him and him alone. That's, that's what Peter is, is pushing for. He's pushing for that among those who are suffering and being persecuted, those who are struggling. We looked at that. Why is that important? Well, it's important for us to remember that this glory that is coming in our identifying with and even suffering with Christ and for the sake of His name and for His glory is good and we should be glad for it and rejoice and we will because God is the one who will be glorified and exalted, and we will as well. And through this text, uh, we're reminded that glory is directly associated with suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ. We sang a song just a few minutes ago, "Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I uh, don't know how long it's been since you sang that song. We sang it to Indelible Grace's version, uh, but... The hymn itself was authored by George Matheson, a Scottish minister and hymn writer uh, who was blind uh, at 17, completely blind at 20, um, and he continued, uh, he continued to preach and to, and to write hymns. In fact, he wrote that hymn in five minutes, never touched it again, wrote it in five minutes on the eve of his sister's wedding. But this is what he had to say about suffering and how suffering is so identifiable with being glorified, and that is for those who trust Christ to come to have faith in Christ and to have faith in God. Uh, If some of these things don't weigh upon you, jot the names of the individuals down, and we can point you to text later, but I want to use his language He said, there's a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very things which now constitute your pain. Nothing could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was laying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was seeming absence of his God. The Lord was in the place and he knew it not. But awakened from his sleep, he found that the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. As the great ones of the past, what has been the spot of their greatest prosperity, and they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham, he will point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, he will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses. He will date his fortune from the danger of the Nile. Ask Ruth. She will, be, she will bid you her monument in the field of her toll. Ask David. He will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job. He will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter. He will extol his submission in the sea. Ask John. He will give you and tell you about the path to Patmos where he was in exile. Ask Paul. He will attribute his inspiration to the light that struck him blind. And then George Matheson said this, Ask one more, the Son of God. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world, and he will answer For the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground, I received my scepter there. And then he said this. He said, Thou also shall be my soul, shall be garlanded by Gethsemane. Because as Christ received his scepter there, as he suffered and submitted to the will of God and would go on to the cross and die, for those here today who know the lord jesus christ yours was picked up there at gethsemane when christ abandoned everything and went to the cross and if you're here today and you've not trusted christ that is the place where yours will begin it's when you go back and look that what christ did that night and then following was for you and your sin, and therein, in the place of his greatest suffering, will come your life. Suffering leads to glory. But not just any suffering. How do we know that? Well, Peter says so in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. I want you to think about that just a moment. Let none of you suffer for those things. In other words, there is, there is this work that takes place in the life of a believer that drives us away from sin. And it doesn't mean that we have sinless perfection because we don't. We struggle with sin, we know that. But much of our suffering is brought on and and Peter was just trying to help them see that they were not to go back that way, that any suffering that came because of their sin and their own sinfulness, then, then that was not equal to the suffering that he is talking about as he's talking about picking up the name of Christ and being so identified with Christ and being so overwhelmingly convincible in your own life That others see him in you, and therefore, because they want to destroy him, they want to destroy you. That's his point. And he tells us here that there are three things that should help guide our thinking and help guide our response to suffering. First, we're not to be surprised. Notice what he says, beloved. Uh, Peter is speaking a, a word of love to uh, these brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted and who are struggling. He said, I want you to know I love you, and what I'm sharing with you, I'm sharing because I love you. That, that's why we are here today dealing with this text It's because we are loving each other to the end of helping us be prepared for whatever it is that will come in the course of our life. And most likely, before the end of our lives, we are going to suffer and be persecuted. And we should not be surprised at that. That's the point. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, I know for a lot of us, we would be surprised because most of our lives have been lived, and most of our life has been lived outside of the threat of that kind of persecution. But Peter said we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. He's trying to help them, and he's trying to help us understand that there will be times when we will lack provisions and power and protection and position, and and we'll even lack... Permanence, in the sense that we, everyone says, well, are we, we, you going to get through it? Well, yeah, we're going to get through it and get to heaven, but we may not get through the suffering and struggling here. And as it pertains to persecution, we may not get through it. Peter did not get through it in that way. He was a martyr. Paul did not get through it that way. Stephen did not get through it that way. And the prophets before them had not gotten through it that way. But they held up the name of the one that they were bearing. They were bearing the name of Christ. They were bearing the name of God and his honor, and they lived up under that. They will be persecuted and punished for their stand for Christ. That should not be surprised to us when it comes. Second, he says, we are not to think that persecution is strange. Notice what he says there in verse 12, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, something that shouldn't be happening, something that is unusual. Suffering for the gospel shouldn't seem strange. In fact, as we said, there should be an expectation of suffering for the gospel. That's the reason these words are so important. As believers, If we live as though suffering for the gospel is a strange thing, then we are not living realistically. We really aren't. And though we may not at the moment be in prison, we are to consider it as a reality of being a believer. So in other words, if you have come to Christ because you expect coming to Christ to be an easy thing, I would say you may want to check that thought at the door. If you came to Christ because of wanting some kind of an abundance of wealth, or if you're considering Christ today as just being something that, well, if I hook up with Christ now, i will just be a better person. And you know, and, and, and if it doesn't work out and there's really not a Christ and, and, and there's really not a heaven, then there's no big deal. I haven't lost anything. I would tell you that that is not a fair representation of the gospel and what the Bible teaches. Now, what we hear is, is that when we, if you will, sign up and sign on the dotted line and say we trust Christ, we need to know the cost that is associated with that and the ultimate cost is our life. The ultimate cost is our life. Christians should have an expectation of imprisonment and suffering and a firing squad if that may be what it is. We must be prepared if we are going to stand when it comes. Now here's the question I've asked myself and I don't know if you've done this or not. If you haven't I would encourage you to do it. What will I do when they come and take me to prison? Or they take my belongings. Or they lead me to the place of execution. That's a reasonable question. What will I do? Will I denounce him? Will I stand faithfully and still proclaim the gospel? What have we done when we have been around individuals and we saw that it wasn't popular or wasn't something that they would embrace? Did we alter ourselves in some way? Did we alter our, our comments? Were we careful with what we had to say about God? Or were we at that time bold in our witness? And talking about Christ and who he is and his glory and his goodness. John Piper tells of the persecution of of Vivia uh, Perpetua. She was a 20-year-old mother, had an infant son. Along with her servant girl who was eight months pregnant was arrested for joining a class of Christian believers. They were having a Bible study class. Perpetua nursed her child in prison, made arrangements with her mother to take him if anything should happen to her, and the servant girl gave birth to her child in prison. Mama, y'all think about that. Uh, when Perpetua's father learned uh, that she was to be thrown into the arena with wild beasts, uh, he tried to get her out. But he was beaten instead. And on the day of the execution the men were taken first, women watching the suffering. Among them was Satyrus, the Bible class teacher, and he stopped at the gate for one last word of testimony with one of his uh, fellow believers. And then even stopped and spoke with the prison governor who later turned to Christ and became a martyr himself. And the men were sent into the arena with a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. And as Satyrus was mangled by the beast, the spectator shouted, he will be baptized. He is well baptized. Next, Perpetua and her servant were stripped, clothes taken off. They were sent into the arena naked to face a mad heifer. And the torture soon became too much for the crowd, and they cried, enough, enough. They couldn't stand it any longer. And then the women were taken to the executioner. And Perpetuer called out to some grieving friends, said, give out the word to the brothers and sisters. Stand fast in faith and love one another and don't let your suffering become a stumbling block and don't let our suffering become a stumbling block. And then the first blow of the gladiator wasn't sufficient. To kill her. So, Perpetua cried out in pain, took the gladiator's hand and directed the sword to her throat. And therein, her life was ended. We don't think about things like that much, do we? Would we be bold in our witness there? You say, well, that's really not real. No, it is real. Uh, This morning, as I was up, as I do most Sunday mornings. and Because our intercession was to pray for our brothers and sisters who were suffering, uh, I began to look and see if I could find where folks were most suffering. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in prison that will be executed today most likely, uh, as there are about 13 or 14 every day in North Korea and in Libya and in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and in Nigeria, and in Yemen. Brothers and sisters that we haven't seen, that we don't know their names, but they are there in the dark dungeons, and they are being persecuted, and they are remaining faithful, and they are not denouncing the name of Christ. I want you to think about who's writing this. Peter's writing this. And in a moment of crisis... Within a matter of just a few hours, even after he has been told that he will deny Christ, he did what? He denied Christ three times. Seemingly simple things, but he was not willing to be identified with Christ. Now, when he's writing this, he will. But there was a time in his life that he wouldn't. And then Peter tells us not to be ashamed. Notice what he says. He said, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because of the spirit of glory and God rest upon you. And then he goes on to tell us not. He says, do not be ashamed of his name. Let him not be ashamed, but let him Glorify God in that name. So uh, we are to expect the suffering. We're not to be surprised. We're not to think it is strange, and we are not to be ashamed. Second point that I want us to look at is suffering and the promise of the Holy Spirit. I, I couldn't get away from this point as I was looking at this text. Let's look at it again in verse thirteen. But rejoice in so far. As you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And, and here, is, here, here are multiple ways that glory is revealed. We're looking to the end. We're looking to eternity. But then notice, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. How? You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. In other words, the mark of the believer is that the Spirit of God lives and resides in him or her. And the Spirit of God reveals himself, shows himself, manifests himself in in a lot of ways in our lives as he speaks to us, as we read God's word, as we meditate on God's word, as we pray over God's word, uh, as we serve, but there is something that is just huge in the course of the life of a believer, and that is the presence of the Spirit of God in the midst of suffering, and he rests upon us. What does he do? What does he do? Well, pay attention. When Jesus told his disciples that He would not leave them as orphans, when we think about orphans being left, what do we think about? We think about their provisions are completely taken away. We think about them being left unprotected unloved, uncared for, as if everything is hands off. And then we are hopeful that in the case of, of orphans, that there are those who come alongside of them and embrace them and bring them in and, 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 and try to provide those things for them. And Jesus says, I am not going to leave this place and leave you as orphans In other words, I'm going to suffer and die, and I am going to be gone, but I am not leaving you alone. He said, but he would send another like himself, the Spirit of God. And what he was saying was, is that the Spirit of God would come and dwell in them so that they would not be apart from him and all that he had provided, and even more, But they would be bonded to the Lord God because the Lord God Himself, His Spirit, would live inside of them. That's huge for us to get our minds around. Huge for the life of a believer and the mind of a believer to even begin to give consideration that the Spirit of God lives in me. How is that possible? It's a supernatural work. But what did this mean for them in their suffering and persecution, and and even more so for us today? And this is not from a selfish standpoint, but what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? Well, first it means that when called upon to bear the witness of his glory, if the Spirit of God is alive in us, we will be given the words or no words for the moment. In other words, if something needs to be said, we will be able to say it, and we will have the wisdom to know whether we need to give a defense or not. And that's modeled by Christ, isn't it? That was modeled by Christ. Christ would be called on to, to bear a witness, and he would say nothing. Even pressed and would say Nothing was ridiculed and called out because you don't answer. Well, no, the Spirit of God, him being God, was upon him. And he knew when to talk and when not to talk. And when it was time for him to talk, he knew exactly what to say, and so will we. Mark chapter 13 and verse 11, we hear Jesus say these words, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say. In other words, when you are bearing witness and testimony when you are called before those who who are calling you to give some kind of a defense, he said, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. That's what the Spirit of God does. Second, the Holy Spirit encourages us that we are being kept by God. I said earlier, His presence most especially during seasons of suffering and hardship give witness to God and His glory and the fact that we also will be glorified. We can be assured of that. Paul points us to this in Romans chapter 8. We read a portion of that. Will you turn to your copies of Scripture uh, and um, look at that for just a moment? In verse 16 of Romans 8, the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Paul just said that you, you are not a believer if you don't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God living inside of you is a, is a, is a guarantee by God. It is the, it's the earnest by God of what He has promised. But the Spirit of God, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, And now listen to this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then notice the very next thing, and this picked up in our, uh, in our call to worship this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Spirit of God in us, in the midst of suffering, is witness and testimony that we are held and we are kept by God. In other words, it affirms again in the midst of persecution that we are His. You know, one of the ways to find out if we are His... It's to face persecution. Those who face persecution, they are refined at that point. They are refined. In fact, those who come into the face of persecution are defined oftentimes. In other words, it's weeded out at that point. We're weeded out at that point. And we'll look at that a little bit later. Third, Coming out of that is the Spirit's presence and ministry in us that enables us to recognize the value of the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, even our lives, because nothing compares to the glory that we will experience in his presence in eternity. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 8. That's what we hear in other places in Scripture. The third point I want us to look at in closing is suffering in God's judgment. How should we live our lives? How should we live our lives? Maybe an easy answer to that is is with eternity in mind. With eternity in mind. We've looked at judgment as we have dealt with Peter, but here again we see In verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It could be translated, for it is time for judgment to begin from the house of God or at the house of God. And it begins with us. That's what Peter was trying to say. Peter had in mind... Ezekiel chapter 9 where uh, the, the, the judgment of God is coming for refining purposes and it began with the priests themselves. Head in mind Malachi chapter 3 seems to be because he's using the same language that common language there about things beginning at the house of God and he's Peter is saying that for it is time for judgment to begin, the refining judgment that ultimately will end with the final judgment. But now he's going to separate the people. It begins with us. In other words, that's where the judgment begins. The suffering and persecution and hardship begin with his people. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. We have already said. Uh, Even from last week, back up in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, Peter was arguing that nothing else needs to happen at this point. The defining point in human history was the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that, That was the central point. That was the defining point. That was the hinge upon all things. And that has taken place, and it has happened. And now he's saying, with that in mind, that those things that come in the way of judgment, that begin with persecution and suffering, begin at the house of God. And it begins with believers. And here's what he's posing. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if judgment begins with those who profess belief in the gospel, what can be expected for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he draws from Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 31. If the righteous is scarcely saved. And his point is not to call into question or cause them to question their salvation. He's just saying that through the course of life, things are hard for the righteous. They're navigating through the difficult times uh, in the course of life. Uh, Calvin put it, he said, uh, a believer is like a ship uh, with a sail that is coming to port, that is having to navigate uh, the coral reefs. And if any of them make it to port, uh, it's a wonder Because of the winds that are cutting various ways and they're trying to navigate, they're trying to navigate all of these obstacles. Faith carries us through all of these obstacles ultimately bringing us to the shore. That's his point. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The point is, is that There will be no hope for them if they do not believe. That's the point. Where does that leave us? Well, look at verse 19. And I've said along the way that this is the theme of the letter. And I want us to look at it here closely. Therefore, this means something to the believer, to the one who professes Christ. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, okay? So I want you to see, uh, we made mention of this last week and I want to mention this again. When we are talking about the sovereignty of God in all things, we recognize that suffering is the will of God. Persecution is the will of God. It doesn't catch God off guard. No, we find that it refines his bride. It refines us. Suffering does refine us. Hardship refines us. Refines us. It sanctifies us. I had made mention to someone this week that just in everything that took place this week, uh, I I was reminded uh, that God was refining me and sanctifying me even through Jamie's death. I was learning better how to shepherd. Learning better how to care for people. Learning to suffer when others suffer. Learning how to feel others' pain in as much as I can. But but that's not just a pastor thing. It certainly is a pastor thing. But it is not just a pastor thing. It is a believer thing. It really is. To express our love and to care for one another here in the body of Christ. To be willing as we even looked at last week where love covers a multitude of sin. To forbear with one another. Whatever it is we forbear and embrace one another. And we hurt and we care for and we encourage. It's refining. It's a sanctifying process. And the same takes place in the course of persecution. And hardship, he says so, is a part of the will of God. And here's what he says, and here's here's where it comes down to. Therefore, those who suffer according to God's will, and he says this, entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. In other words, they entrust their souls to God. They don't trust themselves. They don't trust their thinking. They are not trying to preserve themselves. They entrust their soul. Entrust their soul to who? A faithful creator. Faithful in what way? Faithful in every way to keep them and hold them. That's the reason we looked at Romans 8 this morning as our call to worship. Because absolutely nothing will separate us from the love of God. He is faithful in it, and not only is he faithful, Peter presses here that he is creator, so nothing was before him, and he has made everything, and he holds all things, and he keeps all things, and if you are his, he keeps you and your soul. somehow or another let's get that in our minds okay let's get that in our minds and our hearts that he if we trust him we are entrusting our soul to him and his love and he will keep us so no matter what happens no matter what happens it is when Win for the believer. It's win-win for the believer. And we do this while doing good. We, we, we do this while bearing out his name and doing good. We do this in living for him in a convincible way. Not hidden, hidden, but in a convincible way don't trust yourself do not trust yourself and trust your soul to god let's pray father we admit today that we know little of suffering for your name's sake, in the true sense of persecution. But Father, will you press upon our hearts even now as we have attended this text to help us to see our lives in the context of all suffering and hardship that if we are seeking to bring honor and glory to you in our dealing with sickness and death and financial struggles, and relational struggles, and hurt, and pain, if we are seeking to do this, to bring honor and glory to your name, and to honor you, and to thank you for those things, and to pursue you in the midst of those things, we know, Father, that you will hold us up and bear us up when the more difficult things come when maybe we are called on to bear witness and testimony before we are hung or shot or gassed or imprisoned, or beaten. Father, prepare us for that and cause our hearts to be so so wrapped up in you and so trust in you that we will walk those days relying and resting on the spirit your spirit that rests on us help us Father to abandon our thoughts of living just for today and for our own pleasures but to give consideration to your grace toward us in Christ to the end that we bear his name and share him in our relationships and in all the places that you carry us. And Father, we pray even now that you carry us to places that we have not yet been here in this community. and in the world. We trust in you for these things. We believe in you for these things. We rely on you for these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray.